Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion and diversity in financial services. And as you will know, on the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And before we get started today, I just want to take a moment to thank our friends at City AM for all their continued support of Diversity Podcasts, publishing and promoting both our episodes and our supporting blog series so their readers can stay on top of the very latest diversity and inclusion debate. Now, you may want to check out City AM's own podcast called The City View for all the latest news and opinion from the city because we at Diversity Podcast are huge fans. Now, I'm very excited today because I'm delighted to be joined by Yasmin Chinwala, OBE, and Chris Wallard, CBE. Let me tell you a little bit about each guest. Yasmin Chidwala is a partner at Capital Markets think tank New Financial, which launched in September 2014, and she leads its diversity and culture programme. New Financial has contributed data to the government-backed Guardian Review of Senior Women in UK Financial Services and works with the Treasury to monitor the progress of signatories to this charter. She's been a driving force behind it and it is no surprise that she was awarded for an OBE for her work in this space in 2020. So Yasmin, wonderful you could join us. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much, Julia. Great to be here. Fabulous. And joining Yasmin is Chris Willard, CBE. Now he is a financial services partner at EY and chair of its Global Financial Services Regulation Network. Prior to joining EY, Chris had a 25-year career in public service, the last eight of which were as an executive director and as a board member at the Financial Conduct Authority, where latterly he was also interim CEO. He has held senior roles at Ofcom, the BBC, the Civil Service, and is a Sloan Fellow of the London Business School. He grew up on a council estate in South East London and attended a local comprehensive before becoming the first member of his family to study at university. Chris, it's wonderful you could be with us. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Julia. It's nice to be here. So I can't wait to get into this conversation. So let's, let's get started with the first question, which is I'm always dying to know what our guests are up to. Yasmin, let me come to you first of all. What are you focused on right now? So um, I'm working on three different projects at the moment. I've got, obviously, I'm a, a member of the Socioeconomic Diversity Task Force, in which we're going to be talking about today. But in my sort of day job, I am working on a five-year review of the Women in Finance Charter. As you mentioned, that's a, it's a big piece of work that I contribute to every year. And it's been five years since the launch. It was back in March 2016, so five years has flown. And on top of that, I've also just done a big piece of work called Accelerating Black Inclusion, looking at the experiences of Black colleagues in financial services, and particularly amongst the senior cohort. And the other piece that I'm working on, the planning of at the moment, is a big piece of work called a Diversity Toolkit for Investors. And it's really trying to map out key criteria for investors to be engaging with their investee companies around diversity and inclusion, which I think is only become more important through COVID and really trying to get properly under the bonnet of why is human capital management so important from a sustainability, just a general ESG perspective. I can't help but think we could have an episode on each one of those four topics. I'm so very happy well, to do so, so. <laughs> um, to <laughs> you at any point I in time. Really, this will not be our last conversation for sure. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for framing it so, so clearly as well. And Chris, let me ask you the same question. What, what are you working on at the moment? Thanks, Julia. So 
in my day job, if you want to describe it like that, I'm at EY. I'm a partner in our financial services practice. And what I'm really looking at is where strategy and financial regulation and quite often technology come together. And then that means working with a range of clients from governments to regulators to firms in the, in, in the sector. And alongside that day job, like Yasmin, I'm a member of the City of London's new socio-economic diversity task force. And those wider questions of diversity are something that I've spent a lot of time with over the last 20 years that I've championed in a range of organisations, whether that's around race or gender or LGBT or, or disability. But socioeconomic diversity, I think, is a relative newcomer to this space in terms of the awareness that people have of it. And it's really great to have an opportunity to talk about that a bit more today. Well, let's get straight into it. Why hang around? So, Yasmin, let me come to you first of all, which is, I mean, my first question, of course, is going to be, you know, why do we need it? Why did we have to set it up? And uh, what does it hope to achieve? This is an independent task force set up by City of London Corporation, and it's backed by the Treasury and government. And what it's really trying to achieve is to really increase socioeconomic diversity at senior levels in professional and financial services across the UK. So it's focusing on career progression. There's been a lot of really interesting and long overdue work done at point of access. And that's really been the focus for the industry and and even wider than the financial services industry. That's been around the discussion around social mobility. It's always about point of access. And really what this piece of work is doing that is so different is focusing on how can we bring this discussion into progression into making sure that people, once they're through the door, that they're actually moving through the organization and trying to understand their experiences, their journey, and what they're bringing to the organization far more clearly. Wonderful. And Chris, can I bring you in here? Because I would love to hear you know, about some of the findings that have come out of the, the work the task force has been doing. The task force has its foundations on a major report that was done by the Bridge Group back in 2020. It was a really big piece of research, looked at well over 7,000 people in a range of organisations across the city. And what it found is that if you come from a family with a professional background, about 89% of the senior roles within the sample they looked at were held by people who came from that kind of background. If you compare that to the wider population, 32% of people grow up in households where people have come from a professional background. So when you're age 14, you know, what do your parents do? And if you look even at CEOs in the wider UK market, about 52% of them come from that background. So there's a huge disparity here about who gets on within financial services and professional services in the UK and who really does make it to the top. If you then dig a bit deeper in some of those numbers, you can also see there's an awful lot of intersectionality. So, for example, if you look at people who do come from a different socioeconomic background, so if you come from the 67% of the population that don't, don't sort of fall into that more sort of privileged group, when you look at their progression, if people do make it to the top from those groups, they're about 25% slower in making that journey in terms of the rate at which they're promoted. If you lay over that, the fact that people come from a black or ethnic minority background, actually the rate of progression gets slower. If we look at those who come from an independent school background, so a privately educated background in that, in that mix, around 19% of those people who make it into those senior roles are white and come from a 
independent school background, only 8% are black and come from an independent school background. So there's all sorts of things going on here underneath the bonnet in terms of the picture that's created. But we can see very clearly if you come from what we might just call a professional background in terms of what your parents did for a living, if you come from a certain type of education, if you've perhaps gone to a certain type of university, you know, you are far, far more likely to make it into the senior ranks of the city, but also far more likely than actually other top jobs in the country as well. So that's one of the things that really this task force is focusing on. It's about saying, how do we make sure we get a far greater diversity of individuals, of thinking, and of, as as Yasmin was just saying, really the focus is on progression here. So not just how do you attract people from a much wider base to join your firm in the the first instance and I think there's been a lot of good work that's been going on there but actually how do you really see them progress into the most senior roles and and of course the question about gender does very much sort of fit into that when you talk about the intersectionality and we've got to add add a gender lens as well around that and as I was saying in your introduction Yasmin you've done a lot of work around the women's charter as well I mean are there any findings in that you find particularly concerning whereas you've been a doing the work and then also observing how the charter is progressing as well so I think A key takeaway really is that the focus in terms of the diversity agenda, diversity and inclusion agenda for the majority of financial services and professional services companies has very much been on female representation. And that's been the priority. That's been the priority for quite a while. And even then, we still haven't seen the level of progress that we would have wanted to see. So I think that what the Women in Finance Charter has done is created a framework for discussion and for governance accountability of the female representation agenda. And again, with the Women in Finance Charter was very much about women in senior roles, getting women into senior roles. So that is the first thing is really that that has been a focus for a long time. The focus on social mobility, and Chris touched on this, it's really new. It's a very new discussion. There's been a lot of nervousness around this. The data isn't there. The data wasn't there around female representation for a really long time. But actually, it's something that is much easier to get a handle on because it's quite easy to determine the sex of your staff and you'll give all companies gather that data. They have that information available to them. They don't have information available, readily available to them on socioeconomic background. And that has been a big stumbling block to this discussion. But there's been a lot of work done through uh, academics and the government have done work to try and understand, well, what are the key criteria that we need to ask in terms of data? And so we're there now. We know what those criteria are. But now we're at the stage of trying to actually build that data set. Just one more thing about the Women in Finance Charter that I'd like to add. We asked this year for the Women in Finance Charter signatories to tell us what other diversity data they capture around their female senior management population. And the biggest categories by far were ethnicity and sexual orientation. Then quite a way behind that was disability. And then it really drops off after that. And socioeconomic background came in really, really low down. And only 13 of the 200 plus signatories that we looked at in this particular analysis said that they capture data on socioeconomic background amongst their female senior management population. So that to me is very telling of where we're at. That's the starting point 
for the discussion of socioeconomic background. And of course, the, you know, the wonderful outcomes and the wonderful work of the uh, the task force is to not only bring the conversation forward, but then also to go out into the city and say, this is absolute data we should capture. So to enrich those data sets and also to, to be able to provide the benchmark from which to go forward. I guess the burning question I have from sort of hearing you talk there is not only the fact that you're paying attention to the existing data collection and saying, are you also looking at this data set? But also, what else can we be doing to accelerate that pace of change to collect the data to set the benchmarks? I think there are definitely takeaways from what we've learned through increasing female representation. And we can also learn from some of the pitfalls where things have slowed down. Data is a key one, but at the same time, data shouldn't hold us back from developing some of these other areas. So I think what we've learned through the Women in Finance Charter, for example, is that we need a very clear governance and accountability framework. And that needs to be, okay, how is this addressed as a strategic priority for the organization? And then how are individuals in the organization and leadership and management responsible for driving these changes? Um, That's all work that is separate from data, though obviously there's an overlap. I sort of go back to those key principles of the charter, which are having a senior executive accountable for that agenda, having good quality data around it being public about that data and those targets. And I don't know whether or not we're, we're, I I think this discussion isn't really ready for a link to pay, I would say yet, which is the fourth principle of the charter, though it's it's the most potent one, but it's really around how do you make this accountable? How do you make individuals accountable for progress on this agenda? So that's looking at it from a charter framework. What the work of the task force is gonna be is to try and work out, well, what are the key criteria that, the task force wants to encourage companies to look at. So it might be that it's going to be some of those areas that come that uh, they're going to lean on the Women in Finance Charter for those criteria. There's three streams within the task force. So so one, the the stream that I'm on is, it's called the productivity work stream, but it's really about trying to understand the business case for why should this particular diversity area of socioeconomic background, why should it be important to a company in in the financial services or professional services industry? And it's going to be a far-reaching piece and it's going to be a really, really interesting one. And it's one that's really close to my heart. It's something that I talk about a lot is, is around the business case and how we need to think very much more widely about the business case and not be so narrow about, okay, uh, X percent increase in representation here is going to give you an X percent uptick in your ROE or whatever it is that the criteria you want to look at. It's a much broader view. The second work stream is a work stream that's going to be trying to understand what are the key levers that can be pulled in terms of government and regulators to drive the agenda forward. And the third work stream is trying to set up a membership body of some kind that will be maintaining momentum and leading this work on an ongoing basis. Wonderful. Well, thank, thank you for framing it out in terms of the complexity of change is one of the things we talk about a lot of the podcast. We also talk about the, the compelling reason for change framed in a commercial intention. So really fascinated by some of the, the findings that will come out of those work streams. So thank you. So Chris, you know, the ex-regulator on the podcast today, I mean, the cautionary voice in the enthusiasm for change and also the very considered format for change is I'm, I'm really keen to hear from your point of view, is there anything in the findings that are emerging you're finding particularly concerning. I think when you look at the picture that's presented here and then you think about it perhaps from a regulatory lens for a moment, I mean it tells you a number of things. It tells you that there is a 
potentially a single or actually quite a narrow culture maybe at the top of many firms if you find that many people come from very similar backgrounds very similar framing of their worldviews unsurprisingly they will tend to think alike and they will tend to tackle problems alike and where the FCA has certainly spoken about this and I've spoken about it actually when I was there in in the past it's often been with the framing of who is making the judgments at your senior decision-making boards and committees and how do you ensure that you get a genuine diversity of view so that's the first thing second thing and I think this goes to the work that's been done I think you know real progress has been made on the number of women that you're seeing in senior roles and senior executive roles in particular progress is being made on seeing people from wider ethnic minorities in some of those senior roles as well but I think the one thing the socioeconomic lens sort of throws on that is a real challenge to say well, actually, are you still drawing from quite a narrow pool of candidates here, potentially? This was once described to me rather brilliantly as all you've done is put the sisters of the brothers who are already on the board on your board. Clearly, that's a cliche. But nevertheless, I think there is a genuine challenge back to firms about saying, you, you know, have you really got a more diverse group here now at, at senior level with wider experiences? And this matters. I mean, this really matters. I mean, if you think about this in the context of particularly, say, retail banking or retail insurance in the city, I mean, you can have conversations where people say, well, you know, the customer is only out of pocket by £10 or, you know, whatever it might be. Why is the regulator making such a fuss about those things? And the reality is, you know, for an awful lot of people, that £10 as part of their weekly income is, is, is a huge difference or, you know, the monthly income is, is, is a huge difference. So I think getting those different perspectives in, having people who've come from a range of different backgrounds within boards and committees is really important. And what this report paints so far is a picture that says, actually, it's pretty narrow and we need to change that. I mean, I think there's a wider set of public policy objectives you can lay on this, not least of which is how we think about the recovery from COVID, how we think about the growth of the UK economy post-Brexit. Actually, from a competitiveness angle, if you are not making the most of a much wider pool of talent, there feels instinctively like there's some massive case there for that people are missing out. And one of the things that Andy Haldane's doing as part of this task force is actually assembling, well, what is that economic case? And what just listening to you talk, I mean, my mind's sort of going in many different directions. So one of them is... And it actually draws back on the comment that Yasmin was making earlier about the investment point of view around the importance of financial inclusion as well. So we we talk a lot about, you know, the NEDs on boards tends to be, I I love the way you describe that, the brothers and sisters of those. They all seem to come from a very, very similar background and sitting on similar boards. But also in terms of the economic recovery and thinking about the potential for young entrepreneurs or entrepreneurial businesses from right the way across the UK that are found in many, many different areas as well. And if as an industry, the financial services industry, were not aligned with the types of people who we should be encouraging to set up businesses and grow businesses and engage with the financial services system, which is all about the spirit of financial inclusion, then actually we're, we're out of lockstep, which is really, really fascinating as well. And Chris, I mentioned in the opening remarks about your background as well. I would love to hear, you know, obviously we're thinking about to what degree is socioeconomic diversity moving up the diversity and inclusion agenda? But also, you know, your observations from your career in financial services as well. And and are things changing? 
I've had a career that's obviously spanned lots of different bits of public service, so civil service and regulators like Ofcom and places like the BBC, before spending quite a lot of time at the FCA and therefore in the city and sort of in financial services more generally. It's definitely been a, a journey. I mean, I started off life, and you always feel a bit of strange saying this, by the way, you know, you always feel like you're suddenly becoming a candidate on The Apprentice or something. But, you know, I started off life, my early years, I lived in a, in a tower block, and then I lived in a different council house, you know, all the time I was growing up. I was ridiculously lucky in some ways. I mean, I had a really stable home life, you know, mum and dad were great and continue to be great. And I've been very, very lucky in many ways. But you are also aware, I think, when you go into certain situations, that you 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 are potentially different. So, I mean, I remember being in a, when I first joined the civil service, being in a sort of learning set, which was sometimes a bit of a poster child for diversity in the civil service because there was an Asian man, an Asian woman, and a white, white woman, and, and me. And often it was sort of championed in terms of diversity. And I was the one that was sort of slightly embarrassing for those purposes, being a white bloke. But then when you looked at actually the makeup of that group, you know, I was the only one who'd been to a state school. I was the only one who hadn't been to Oxford or Cambridge. And you're aware that actually maybe, well, there's some, there some different sort of angles here in terms of what's the norm within, within organisations. But it tends to be something you don't talk about. And I, certainly I didn't talk about it for, for years. It's only really the last couple of years that I've, I've sort of people have encouraged me to, to, to sort of talk about, you know, background and journey and, and, and those kind of things. And it does. I mean, it's, it, there's a lot of it in the Bridge Report that's actually published for the City of London, you know, the way that people will feel they can't engage in certain conversations. You know, if everyone's having a lovely chat about, you know, what they're doing on their yacht or skiing or, you know, their second home or whatever it might be. And you kind of think, well, you know, until recent years, well, I've tried to ski very badly. You know, there's nothing I can add to that conversation. And so it's important, I think, that people recognise that not everyone who makes it into senior leadership roles actually does come from that background. One of the things we regularly did at the FCA was we had a group of students come in every year from the Social Mobility Foundation. And I used to stand there and say who I was and the job I did and all those sorts of things. And then I'd get them to draw a picture on a post-it note of where's the house that I grew up in and where's the school I went to. And invariably, 95% of the kids in the room would draw a sort of detached house like you would in a sort of Mr. Man book. And on the other side, they'd draw this school with sort of great big columns up the front of it and, and, and all of those sorts of things. And, and it, would, it would invariably surprise them that I came from that background. So there's a lot that, you know, when you're looking up as a young person, you, you sort of project onto people that maybe they come from a completely different background, whereas actually there are many that don't. But, you know, as we can see from the research, <laughs> you know, relatively too few still. And I think one of the really important things about this piece of work is how do we create those pathways for progression and how do we get people to, to want to, to be involved in it? And, you know, certainly when I was starting out my career, you know, could I imagine both in the city, the current Lord Mayor and the future Lord Mayor potentially being supporters of an agenda like this? No, I couldn't. I mean, I think, that, you know, there's already been some huge steps in terms of progress, but there's an awful lot more that we need to do here. And I think that's a real example of where the nature of the discussion in the city has just changed so much. And there's so much to be sort of really positive about. And I think, you know, yeah, I mean, Yasmin, you and I have been kicking around the, this industry for longer than we're going to put a number on, put it that way. I mean, I'd just love to hear from your point of view as well, you know, the positive changes that you've seen in your career journey as well. Obviously, we've talked about what we must be very mindful and very cautious of, but it does feel like the conversation around diversity and inclusion is really changing. I suppose the 
sensible frame to look at it as and as I'm working on the five-year review of the Women in Finance Charter, if we think back to March 2016, which is when the Women in Finance Charter launched, the headlines against the principles of the charter were hire women or lose your bonus. You know, it was really crazy kind of stuff that it was a very, it was a very knee-jerk reaction of, you know, this is crazy madness. Why should we be promoting women? This is not meritocratic. And that was the nature of the, of the discussion. It was horrifying to the industry to set targets. It was a really terrifying prospect five years ago. And now those things are all part and parcel of the discussion. And in fact, the task force is starting. We had our inaugural meeting of the task force very recently. And the opening question was, should we be setting a target and what would that look like? So, you know, that starting point of the discussion is completely different than it was five years ago. And the change we've seen in the past five years has been very, very, very rapid. I think the years before that, there wasn't the governance and accountability to really drive change and everything was tinkering at the edges. We've still got a lot of tinkering at the edges going on, but I do think, and this is something, as I said, you know, I'm sort of looking at through the five-year review of the charter, we have reached a point where there is a critical mass of companies who take these issues seriously enough that they're really beginning to understand the granularity needed to drive change. And hopefully that is going to just permeate across the industry over time and initiatives like the task force will accelerate that. Wonderful. I'd love to sort of turn the conversation a a cog shift, if I may, which is uh, we've talked about actually the industry wanting to take this more seriously about the conversation about socioeconomic inclusion. And we've talked about some of the positive changes and we still have a long way to go yet. But I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, what can the industry do to make itself more appealing? You know, you can arguably say that the race for talent, the competition for talent is fierce. So what do we need to do as an industry to appeal to other sections of society? Chris, let me come to you first of all for your thoughts. I don't think there's one silver bullet. I think this is one of those things that's going to be a multi-layered approach. I think an awful lot of firms are starting to put in place programs that are about attracting talent at the entry level and about reaching out particularly into the schools. So just shamelessly plugging it for a second. I mean, EY has a program called Smart Futures that gives paid work experience for about 10 months. Lots and lots of other organizations have those kinds of schemes where you get a bit of paid work experience and you get a bit of coaching and you get a bit of life skills and all those kinds of things. And I think they're brilliant on two levels. The first is it actually raises awareness. You know, if I think back to being at school, there were so many careers and so many avenues I just simply didn't know existed. You would look at certain professional roles and just sort of think, broadly, that's something to do with the law or that's something to do with accountancy. And you wouldn't necessarily have that sort of depth of insight into what are the possibilities and the careers there to even go looking in the first place. I think paid work experience is incredibly important as opposed to internships. You know, we will be talking about kids who will be making the choice between saying, do I put in some extra time waiting tables or at the supermarket or whatever it might be, or do I actually get some paid work experience and trading off what that means to them personally? And I don't think we should ever sort of forget that. But then I think where the real gap is right now in many, many organisations And this is therefore, you know, it's a shared problem. It's something the coalition of the willing are going to have to really get behind is how do you then from having that great start, 
start to see people really genuinely progress as opposed to perhaps the apprenticeship schemes or the reach out entry schemes being a way of getting maybe to the middle of an organization and stopping. How does it really give you a career path that goes to the top? And I think there's an enormous amount we can learn in terms of, well, what has worked around race or what has worked around gender? So things like the 30% club in, in, in gender or the kinds of mentoring sponsorship schemes that have happened in government and, and elsewhere around race. You know, if we can learn from the best of them, then I think we've got a real chance here of really bringing a pipeline of talent from a much wider background through into the top ranks of the city. And yes, when you're working with organisations and talking to organisations as you do, I mean, what, what advice would you give listeners and their companies who want to widen the scope of potential applicants into their organisations as well? I suppose my number one would be, please do consider getting involved with the work of the task force in some shape, manner or form. I, I suppose my focus is very much on progression. So it's not really about that applicant stage, but it's much more around is what you're currently doing, I suppose my starting point would be, is what you're currently doing around your diversity and inclusion initiatives, be that for women, be that for ethnic minorities, are those programmes, those initiatives in those areas, are they inclusive? Are they genuinely inclusive? Are they going to be attracting, for example, a, a black woman from a really deprived socioeconomic background? Is it genuinely open to a wider pool or is it, as we've already discussed, is it just maintaining that narrow focus? And I think that, and again, that's a question that we asked the Women in Finance Charter signatories in the latest round of analysis that we did. We asked the question around the activities to support targets that they tell us about in their submission forms every year. We asked them, what are you doing to ensure that your actions are inclusive to women across all diversity strands. And frankly, the responses were really poor because that indicates to me that they're not really doing that work to understand if they're being inclusive with these approaches. So a starting point, I think, really is be inclusive with the approaches that are already underway and kick the tyres on them. Really try and understand, is this going to get us the widest possible talent pool, even if it's under the heading of women or ethnic minorities or whatever it might be. A big focus for the task force is going to be around data. So again, for organizations, I think the really big focus and for individuals is around what can I do as a person and what can my organization do to try and build this data set? What you as an individual can do is when that email pings into your inbox saying, can you identify against various characteristics? And it's that dreaded diversity form that nobody wants to fill out and nobody can be bothered to do. Please do it. Please think about this is the key to unlocking so much of the things that we've been talking about today. Without that high quality data, it can't move forward. But I think that the data issue is going to be very, very front and centre for at least the length of the life of the task force. Well, what a better moment to bring in Cynthia to talk about data, which is going to support today's discussion as well. The 2020 article from Stuart's a UK employment law firm states that the two key reasons for the lack of diversity in financial services are unconscious bias and a disproportionate number of applicants for jobs in the financial services sector have attended a prestigious school or often independent school and studied at a leading university. Increasing diversity through better representation of gender, race, disability and sexual orientation is a good start, 
but employers can take the following steps to improve the diversity of their teams through socioeconomic inclusion. Collect and analyse data on the socioeconomic background of staff in order to understand the size of the problem. Don't insist on candidates having a degree from a good university. Make sure recruitment panels are as diverse as possible. Address and discuss possible bias in recruitment decisions. Set up a staff diversity and inclusion panel to consider company policy and decisions. And partner up with charities who work with school children with less privileged backgrounds and offer work experience. So thank you, Cynthia, as always. And of course, remember, you can find all the research on our website, diversecitypodcast.com. And don't forget that's diversity with a C, not with an S, diversitypodcast.com. And you can sign up for early notifications of future recordings. Please do follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Diversity Podcast is available on Bright's Talk and all good podcast channels. And don't forget, of course, that we are grateful to our friends at City AM, who not only publish and promote all the episodes, but also our regular blogs. And if you are listening, we would, of course, love a rating because it all helps to promote the show. So just before we went into the research break there, we were talking, Gaspin, with you about data as well. We have to, of course, remember this is a very human-centred conversation as much as we've talked about data and organisational change as well. I mean, as we go into the last minutes of the podcast, I'd really love to hear your response to the question I'm asking everybody, which is really right now, why it's so important that diversity and inclusion remains high on corporate agendas. I think with what we're living through at the moment, with hopefully, fingers crossed, the tail end of COVID and COVID restrictions, it's really brought home how important good quality, high quality people management is for organizations to really be sustainable. Who would have thought that something that is considered very much a DNI thing, so flexible working and the ability to work effectively remotely, that's always something that's sat in the DNI bucket of, okay, that's a nice to have, it's not essential. But actually it turned out that it was a vital part and has now become a vital part of business continuity planning for the whole industry. So I think that with that thinking now awakened, we need to continue to really understand how important people are to our organizations and that we get the best out of them. Yeah, as, as you say, I mean, these are the most incredible times that are really challenged thinking. When we think about what enlightened leaders are paying attention to, this is such a timely discussion. Chris, it's a similar question to you. Close out the show for us. Love to hear your reasons why diversity and inclusion must remain high on the corporate agenda. So like Yasmin, I mean, I think you cannot understate the role that good leadership has played in this crisis. If you look at the organisations that have come through it best, they have had that strong, enlightened leadership within them. In terms of why will this continue to matter, if you're taking a sort of, oh, I've got to do it kind of reason, the reality is things like the task force, things like the strand within it around government and regulation are going to continue to pay attention to this. I think shareholders, particularly in a world in which the S in ESG is becoming increasingly important, are going to pay attention to this. So even if you wanted to hide from it, which I don't think many people do, you know, as a senior leader, this is an agenda you're going to have to engage with over the coming years. 
But I think far, far more than that, you know, there's, there's a really positive reason to want to get involved. And one of the things I think we're going to try to do with the task force is absolutely build a coalition much wider than even the firms and organisations already involved in it. So look, positively here, this is a chance for leaders across the financial services industry up and down the UK, not just in the city, to play a really positive role in making the lives of a whole group of people who would have never come through into the senior leadership of these organisations before, not only significantly better for those people, but actually better for their firms. This is a chance to get a genuine diversity of thought, spirit around the table making decisions and driving firms forward at a time when getting that fresh blood, getting that fresh talent has never mattered more. It's been the most fantastic discussion, if you think how much we've covered, but also it's great to hear about the work of the task force. It's great to hear the context of other initiatives as well, particularly the the Women in Finance Charter, its progress on that. Yasmin will definitely talk about that again. Uh, But also to hear your personal stories, your personal journeys and observations of change, as well as thinking about the data, the importance of the data and the fact that this ultimately is a very human-centred conversation, but it's about progression. It's progression of talent into the socio-economic talent pool that is right under our noses as well. Yasmin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been the most fantastic conversation. Thank you so much, Julia. Really appreciate it. And Chris, thank you for your thoughts. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Julia. And as always, to all our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. I've been Julia Street, and we look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Street's Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsania for her insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. All our episodes are available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. If you enjoy Diversity Podcast, remember to share on social media and give us a rating or review. It really helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.